And turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. And this evening we're going to be looking, spending most of our time here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And also uh, we'll spend a little bit of time in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Again, we are looking at uh, the threefold office of Christ, of prophet, priest, and king. And we are spending time looking at the kingly office, and we have seen how that has been worked out in uh, Adam's time. We've seen how it's worked out in Noah's time, in the patriarchs. And then as Israel becomes a nation, we've been seeing this uh, work of God, that he is acting as, uh, and Israel is acting as a theocracy, with God himself, Yahweh himself, as their king. But what we're going to look at this evening is a very sad moment in Israel's history as Israel rejects Yahweh as their king. So look with me, 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter, and then we'll come through and make some comments. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his uh, chariots and be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of, of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves." And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But 
the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Let's seek the Lord's face in prayer. Father, Lord, we pray that your word would be the sharp two-edged sword, that it would pierce deeply into the dividing of the soul and the joints and marrow. Father, that it would be a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Father, may we not read of the history of Israel here and think of it as just a curiosity of what has happened in ages that have gone by, but Father, may we learn truth and be warned of their foolish actions that we would not repeat them in our own lives. Father, take Your Word and apply it to our hearts and lives. May we leave here different than when we first came in. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. So, Israel here rejects Yahweh as their king. Now, just to quickly review some of the stuff that we looked at last week, we saw the commentary at the end of the book of Judges when Israel's society essentially crumbles and falls apart because of unthinkable wickedness that's done in Benjamin and then a civil war that almost develops as a result of that. And so the, the commentary at the end of the book of Judges is that in those days there was no king in Israel. And as a result or an implication of that, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now again, we have this conception that the, the king that, that the author of Judges is likely referring to is a human king, but the, the point of what is being displayed in the book of Judges is not only have the people not had a human king, they have lived in such a way so that their king, Yahweh, has withdrawn himself from Israel. And we, we see this in Israel's state when we begin in 1 Samuel. It is a barren land. There was corruption in the priesthood. There was a famine for the word of the Lord. The barrenness of Israel is physically represented in the barrenness of Hannah. But God, what a wonderful phrase that we see in the Scriptures. God is still merciful and gracious and and He provides hope through the gift of a son to Hannah, who will be a true judge, a judge that judges Israel in righteousness and according to what God would have. And so we, we looked forward and, and saw 
that Israel's rebellion that had crept up and gotten worse and worse throughout the time of the judges. There, there is this call to repentance. Israel goes to war. They're defeated by the Philistines. They call in the Ark of the Covenant, treating it like a trinket. And as a result of that, they are defeated even more so. And the, the, the point that's said there, the point that's made about that is that the glory has left Israel. The wife of Phineas, Eli's son, a corrupt priest, hears of his death, and as she dies in childbirth, she names her son Ichabod. The glory has departed. In other words, there is no king in Israel. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 7, we spent time looking at Samuel calling Israel to repentance and to revival. They have to put away their gods. They have to return to worship to Yahweh alone. And then Yahweh will give them victory. And then there's this wonderful hope that the Philistines are driven out. There's victory given to Israel. Their king is back. And it seems, as we come to the end of chapter 7, as Samuel has solemnly charged Israel with an oath to keep the words of the Lord and to worship Him alone, and he sets up the sign of victory, Ebenezer, the stone that Israel is to look to, to remind them of the promises they've made to God in the hearing of that stone, it seems as though the divine monarchy has been restored and there is now hope in Israel. And then we come very quickly in the narrative in 1 Samuel, to 1 Samuel chapter 8, our text this evening. Now, it's, it's interesting here how there is likely a significant period of time that goes on between the end of 1 Samuel chapter 7 and the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 8 because we see Samuel acting as likely a younger judge, but then we come to chapter 8 verse 1 and we see Samuel has now become old. And what we see happening here is Israel demands a new king. They reject Yahweh's monarchy, and they ask for a human king. Now we see in the, in the first opening verses of our text in 1 Samuel 8, there is some commentary given to us about Samuel as a judge. And while Samuel judged Israel with wisdom and allegiance to the Lord in his old age, he wanders, and that's the wrong, there should be an A, not an O there on wanders. He wanders from careful obedience to the Lord. We see that he builds an altar in, um, in uh, Ramah. We actually see this um, here in verse 8. When Samuel became old, he and he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Israel, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And I'm sorry, it's in chapter 7, verse 17, that Samuel would return to Ramah. His home was there, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Here's the thing. Where was worship supposed to happen among Israel? There was one place given for Israel to worship, and that's at the tabernacle. And that was the place where Israel was to worship, not to begin building other altars. And so we see Samuel beginning to diverge from God's way. We also see this uh, as a result of his, his son's injustices. In fact, we see the, 
the problem that we saw with Eli's sons now becoming a problem with Samuel himself. He appoints them as judges. One of the things that we looked at that was necessary for a judge to be appointed was it wasn't that judges were appointed by men. Who appointed the judges of Israel? God did. And so we, we see even in that instance Samuel overstepping the result or the, the requirements of what he has. His sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after gain. They took bribes. They perverted justice. And, and what we actually see is Samuel's failure to be the leader that God had called him to do creates an environment rife for Israel to rebel against God's rule. His sons were supposed to be doing what was right and just, and instead they were perverting that, and the people languished. They grew sick and tired of Samuel's sons and their corrupt rule. And so they ask for a king. We see in verse 4, Then all the elders' visuals gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, and then they begin with probably one of the most enduring words that you could tell everyone, Behold, you are old. (laughs) Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. There was a sense here that as Samuel had gotten older, his own ability to think and to ration clearly and to see what his sons were doing was being obscured. And and then his allowance of his sons to pervert justice brought about what we see here in 1 Samuel 8. Now they want a king. Now it's important for us to recognize that the desire for a king was not necessarily wrong. Had not God told and promised Israel that there would one day be a king, a human king, that would come from Jacob's line and particularly from Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Yes, this was expected that there would be a king. And so we have to be careful here that that we don't miss the point of where Israel's rebellion lies. It's not in their desire for a king It's in their motivation for that king. And so it is Israel's motivations that reveal where their rebellion is. What were those motivations? Well, the first thing we see is they insisted that the time was now. Notice what they say. Behold, you are old. Your sons do not walk in our ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. They insisted that the time was now. Rather than humbly and faithfully waiting for God's timing, they lacked patience. And boy, isn't this applicable to us today. How often are we very much like Israel? We want God to work as we want Him to work on our terms right away. We want it now. This was a problem even when Jesus came in His first first advent. He comes and 
and the Israelites and even his own disciples are looking at him and, and they say as things are coming to an end, his disciples ask him, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Like, is this now the time that you're going to fix everything and create this great nation and we're going to throw these Romans out of here? I mean, is this now the time? I mean, we, we see this in our own lives. I mean, how many of us, as we talked about today, we look forward to the hope of Jesus coming how, how many of you would not want him to come now? Come, Lord Jesus. But we cannot allow our desire for God's good gifts to drive us into discontentment. In fact, it was a lack of patience that motivated the golden calf incident with Aaron and the people of Israel. Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law of God. And the Scriptures tell us in Exodus chapter 32 that when they looked up and and they saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they said to, to Aaron, Up, make us gods. And the reality is every... Every pool of idolatry is a pool for us to make God. Because if we are the ones who created God, then ultimately who is the God? We are. And so their impatience with Moses, and they, they, they told Aaron, it says, as for this Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. I mean, Moses... Has this guy not done enough for Israel? He led them out of Israel. He brought them through the promised land. He put his own life and his own reputation on the line. I mean, God used him to do all these things. And what are the Israelites doing? Ah, we don't know what happened to this Moses. And their impatience led them into sin. I think of what Jesus' response was to the disciples who said, Will you now... Restore the kingdom to Israel. And you know what he says to them? It is not for you to know the times and the seasons. What is our charge? Our charge isn't to know the times and the seasons. Our charge is to trust in the Savior. To know that His way and His timing is and will always be perfect. In fact, this is what James tells us in James 5, 7-8. Be what? Be what? Patient. Now, when God says something and tells us to do it, what do we call that? It's called a command. And when we don't obey a command of the Lord, what do we call that? Disobedience. So when you're not patient, what are you being? Disobedient. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. So not only does he tell us to be patient and gives us an illustration of what patience looks like, and that's like being a farmer, who waits, you know, you don't plant your seed and then the next day come out and harvest the fruit. So he says again, be patient. And then he makes this statement that I think is so important for us to recognize. We need to establish our hearts. That our hearts must be cast in full faith upon 
God's good actions and timing. We need to wait on the Lord. If we're not waiting on the Lord, we're not trusting in the Lord. And so Israel shows their motivations by insisting that the time was now. Secondly, we see that they are seeking for Samuel to be the one to appoint this king. What's interesting here is nowhere in their request to Samuel do they ask him to inquire of the Lord. You make us a king. Now, this maybe had been some of Samuel's own foolishness because who made his sons judges? Samuel did. And so perhaps Samuel's abuse of the power and the authority that God had given him led Israel to think, well, it's up to Samuel to do this. They fought for Samuel to be the one to do this. They sought for themselves to be the one who set and worked as God had said. And then finally, we see the real driving motivation for this is we see in the last sentence of verse 5, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. The final thing we see about their rebellious motivation is they wanted to be like the nations around them. I mean, this is the ultimate rejection of Yahweh as king. You know what made Israel different from all the other nations around them? Their God was their king. It wasn't that their human God was declared, or their, I'm sorry, their human king was declared to be a God, which was the practice of almost all the nations around them. Almost every nation around Israel saw the king as a God. But Israel was different in that they had the only one true God as their king. It made them completely different than the nations around them. But the pool of their culture, the pool of their society, the pool to be like the nations around them was so strong that they said, we want to be like them. It was the desire to be like the other nations that persisted among Israel that brought them to this point of rebellion. Now, does this same pool exist today? Oh, yeah. How often we yearn to be like the world around us. Makes life easier, right? We don't have to explain ourselves to people if we can just go along to get along. Makes us fit in. Makes us feel like we're a part of something. It makes us feel more at home in this world. And the reality is for God's people, we are not to be at home in this world. We are to be pilgrims. Look at what Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6. And actually, the the connections here with Israel are, are very interesting. What is it that makes us different than the world around us? We are the temple of God. 
As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Listen, you cannot have God, Yahweh, you cannot have Christ as your king and your God while you also seek to be like the nations that despise his name. And so God says, therefore, because God is going to be among us and walk in us, we are to go out from their midst and we are to be separate from them. Says the Lord, we're not to touch the unclean thing. And then when we do this, I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. I mean, think about the promises here. We're made to, we're told and commanded to come out and to not be a part of this world because we have the Lord Almighty, the one who has all power behind us. I think we need to really focus on that reality when the pressure comes to be like the world. Because we can justify it. Well, I need to go out and, and be involved in this sinful activity because I know that my boss and my coworkers are going to be there and, and it's good for my career. And, and we wonder about how it's going to affect our jobs. I mean, we need money, right? We need these things. Is your God not strong enough to provide for you even if you lose your job? That's going to become a reality that's going to confront us as believers more and more in the world in which we live. You stand for truth. You believe that God's Word calls certain activities sin. You can't work here and believe that. And so the pull, the pressure will be to be like them. But God Almighty says, come out. Be separate. And so the response from us as God's people then is since we have these promises, the promises of God's all-powerful presence, what do we need to do? Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Israel rejected all of that. Israel came and said, we want to be like the nations around us. And so Samuel warns them. He goes to God. It displeases him. And so Samuel prayed to the Lord. In verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. They've not rejected you. They've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. God is like, this is what, this is what Israel's been doing from the moment I saved them. I brought them out of Egypt, led them with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, split the Red Sea, fed them food from heaven. And from the moment they came out of Egypt until now, guess what they've been doing? Rejecting me. 
And so, Samuel, they've not rejected you. They've rejected me. So obey their voice, he says in verse 9. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so Samuel comes and we see in verses 10 through 18 this stern warning that Samuel gives to Israel about what their king will do. He says that their sons will be conscripted into armies and made to do battle. There'll be no choice for Israel's sons. They will be forced by the king to be led by that king into battle against these four nations, and their sons will die at the, by the hand of the sword, swords of heathen nations because of the leadership of these human kings. I mean, this is Mother's Day. We think about the love and the compassion that mothers have for their children. And Samuel warns them, saying, those children that you care for and love so much, they're going to be taken from you. They're going to die because of your decision here. Israel's lands will be confiscated and used for the cause of war. It's going to take their lands and use them to reap harvest, to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots, he says. Could you imagine being a, a, a farmer in Israel who spent your entire life developing a vineyard and that vineyard is now becoming uh, productive and you're now able to, to provide better for your family and things are, things are finally looking up and the king comes in and says, you know what, this flat piece of land that you have here, it's going to be great for us making the gears of war. So it's mine now. It's taken from them. The daughter's will be forced to labor for the king and his armies. They'll be sent, some of them, to the front lines to serve as bakers and cooks. Not only that, what's interesting to me is the cooks and the bakers are mentioned last. The first thing he mentions is that the daughters will be used to be perfumers. The implication here is that the king is going to be opulent in what he takes from the people so that the people will suffer and the king will live in luxury forcing the daughters to create very fine fragrances for this lavish king. Israel's wealth will be taxed. Speaks of how he'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and he'll give them to his servants. And the idea there is not that the servants are the ones who get to reap the benefits from that, but they will serve and take those lands so that it serves the riches of the king. Verse 15, he's going to take a tenth of their grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. Now, maybe if you're thinking for yourself, well, that's actually not too bad when you consider the U.S. tax code. I don't know. He's going to take their male servants, female servants, the best of their young men, their donkeys, and put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your flocks. In other words, there is no aspect of the life of Israel that will be unaffected by their choice of taking a king. 
He is going to exact from them their families, the, the blood of their children, their money, and their land. He's going to take everything from them. So much so that as he says at the end of verse 17, you shall be his what? Slaves. The whole nation is now going to be under the, the hand of a human master as their king who brings them into slavery. Now, verse 18 is even more striking. In the day when Israel looks around and they see that their families have been broken by war, that their lands have been taken, their money taxed, their daughters forced into labor. In that day, they're going to cry out because of their king. The king whom, and this is so important, you have chosen for yourselves. And what does Samuel say God will do in that day? Look at the end of verse 18. The Lord will not answer you in that day. So, a solemn warning. These are the consequences. It is essentially Samuel reporting and bringing the message of Joshua again. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Will the Lord be your God and King or will you seek these foreign gods? And so we come to the very sad last verses of 1 Samuel 8. In verse 19 we see, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us. That we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Israel rejects Samuel's warnings, refuses to obey, and proclaims their desire to live independent of Yahweh's reign. They specifically reject the very things that Yahweh does as king and asks for a human king to do those things. Notice what they say. They say, first of all, they're rejecting Yahweh's authority. They say, there shall be a king over us. This king is the one who will be the ultimate authority for Israel. They're rejecting God's authority. This king will be over us. They reject Yahweh's direction. This king will serve as their judge. He may judge us. And they reject Yahweh's protection. This king will be the one who will go out before us. And he, the king, whom Israel has chosen, will fight our battles. You know what's amazing is we look in the book of Joshua. When Israel is victorious, there is 
almost always a comment at the end of the battle or before the battle that gives confidence, that says, Yahweh fights for us. The Lord fought for Israel. I mean, think about the battle of Jericho. How much effort did it take on the part of Israel to knock down those walls? What did they do? Did they, did they push real hard against those walls? Did they put up, up sort of battering rams and, and try to pull down their wall, those walls through their own strength? No. What did they, they just marched around the city seven days, one time a day, blowing trumpets, and on the seventh day they went down seven times, and, seven, and on the seventh time that they blew their trumpets, who knocked the walls down? God did. God fought their battles for them. Now, what are they saying? We want a king so that he would go up before us and fight our battles. And so what does God do? Does he come to them and scold them and show a great display of his power and might and judge them and, 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 and seek, to, seek to force them into a changed way? No. God grants their rebellious request. I think we need to recognize here that God sometimes acts in ways like this, giving us over to our sinful choices to show us exactly what our sinful choices bring. God is merciful and gracious all the time. And in fact, by allowing Israel to persist in this rebellion and to bring a ruinous calamity upon their heads, He's teaching them something. Scriptures tell us that all discipline is unpleasant in the moment, right? And God is not disciplining Israel by taking them back behind the woodshed and telling them, you shouldn't do this. What does God do? He says, this is what you really want. I've, this has been going on for hundreds of years. This has been going on since I brought you out of Egypt. You haven't changed a lick, so if this is what you want, here you go. And he gives them over to their sinful desires. All of these things, the authority, the direction, the protection, they were to be Yahweh's prerogative alone, and they wanted a human king to do it. They reject Yahweh as their king. It's sad. It's a warning to us. Will Christ be our king? Or will we fight against His rule in our lives? I imagine that there probably was a sense of relief and even celebration in Israel at this moment. Yes, we got what we wanted. And little did they know that their failure to heed the warnings of Samuel, their failure to trust in the Lord would bring disaster in their first king. 
Saul. Now, we're not going to spend the time to look in-depthly at their choice of Saul and everything that goes on there. I just want to make some quick highlights about Saul. Saul is the exact opposite of what God would later command Israel to look for in a king. He is the exact opposite. When Jacob gave his prophecy about the scepter will not depart from who? Judah. Where's Saul from? Benjamin. Oh, wait. What do we remember about Benjamin? At the end of the book of Judges, what tribe was it that did terrible things to the Levites' concubine? What tribe was that? Benjamin. This is going, this, I mean, if you're reading through the Scriptures and you're reading Judges and you come to the end and you're like, man, Benjamin really messed things up. And then you come here and you're like, wait a second, what are you doing taking a Benjaminite as your king? He ends up reigning from the town of Gibeah. That town was the town that did what they did to that Levite's concubine. What's, what is going on here? We also know that Saul is strong, handsome, and taller than any of his people. In fact, what this may be showing is that Israel and Saul himself would put their confidence not in God's power, but in Saul's abilities. He's a very strong man. In fact, there even might even be a, it speaks of how he was taller than all of Israel. There might even be a little bit of shade being thrown here because what was one of the remarks about the Canaanites that was given to Israel saying, we can't go in and take this land because there are what in the land? Giants. Israel wanted a king like the nations around them. So Saul's the exact opposite. He is, he is the quintessential sterling example of what men would look for. This is the best Israel has to offer from a human perspective. And how does it go with Saul? Not well. Saul is not submissive to the Lord, but follows his own wisdom and brash ways. There's different accounts throughout Saul's life. We know that he brashly speaks a vow while they're in battle, essentially saying that, um, that they're not to, to drink any water, to stop to drink, but they're to continue the battle. Jonathan, his son, doesn't even hear about this. He stoops down, takes a little bit of rest, takes some drink of the water, and the soldiers are like, your life is forfeit. Don't you know that this, the king had decreed this? We also know that he does not kill the king of the Amalekites nor the best of the livestock. When God gives them victory, that was the command. Destroy everything. What does Saul do? Oh, I'll keep the king as sort of a trophy. And it's a shame to kill all this delicious beef. Unfortunately, it wouldn't be ham because they couldn't eat pigs at that day. But, and so he saves those best things. And as a result of that, Saul's willful rebellion brings God's rejection of him as king. And so if you take your Bibles and turn with me quickly to 1 Samuel chapter 15. First Samuel 15, verses 22 through 23. 
What's amazing is to notice that they, they devoted to destruction many things, but they kept some of these spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the best of all the things destroyed to destruction. And he, they said, we'll sacrifice that to the Lord our God. They, they sought to sort of, sh- sort of cover their sinful activities by spiritualizing it. Oh, well, we're going to give this to the Lord. And so Samuel comes to Saul and he says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? What a rebuke. Listen, you can come here every single Sunday. You can give in the offering plate to the Lord. You can sing out. You can be in the choir. You can be an usher. You can be a deacon. You can be a pastor. You can go through all the, the, all the things that happen in worship, but God doesn't want it unless your life is obedient. He does not delight in the offerings of His disobedient people. In fact, what Samuel says here is says it is better to obey than to sacrifice. God would rather you live a life of obedience than come to church on Sunday. That's really what he's saying here. Now he also wants you to come to church on Sunday, but it's better to listen to his word than to give the fat of rams. And then notice what he says about rebellion. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. That is the idea of consulting with demonic forces to learn things. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Essentially, what Samuel is saying here, which is remarkable, Saul is not doing the terrible things that we'll see in the kings of Israel later on. He's not setting up altars to Ashtaroth in the temple. He's not setting up high places. He's worshiping Yahweh. But he's doing it through actions of disobedience. And God says to me, if you're going to come here and worship me and yet hypocritically live a life that doesn't match what you're saying in your worship, you might as well be asking to talk to a demon. You might as well come to church. Instead of opening the Bible, you should open up a Ouija board. That's what he's saying. And so the pronouncement is made from Samuel, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul comes and he regrets what he's done. He gives repentance. And what we end up finding is that this repentance, as we continue in the life of Saul, is skin deep. It's worldly repentance because his life doesn't truly change. And finally, we come and we see God's final commentary on Saul's reign. It's one 
of regret. Look at the last verse of 1 Samuel 15. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. What a commentary. There's much for us to learn from this, much that convicts us, much that drives home to our own hearts to examine what are we doing? Are we living lives that reject what we say on Sundays? God doesn't want hypocritical worship. He doesn't want it. He's not impressed by your sinful actions that if you were to go out and gain the whole world through the efforts of sinful actions and then give it all to God, He doesn't want it. He wants your obedience. He wants your changed life. And we know this comes only and fully by the grace of God at work in our lives. But as that grace works, we must obey. I wonder what the response will be of God over your life. Will He regret what He's put into your life? Which brings up a, a very quick question I'd like us to consider. Um, and I say quick, this is a huge question. I'm going to try to do it in three minutes, all right? Does God change his mind? No. Good answer. Does God change his mind? 1 Samuel 15, though, seems to indicate perhaps differently. God regrets that he made Saul king? Now, we have to understand that the doctrine of what we call the immutability of God tells us, teaches that God does not change. All right, so does God change his mind? The answer is no. Malachi 3, 6, for I, the Lord, what? Do not change. I mean, it can't be any more clearer than that, right? God does not change. And there's a wonderful hope that Malachi brings out about this because, because God has made promises to us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That unchanging declaration that we are His, that He has chosen us, that unchanging hope that's found in Christ, because He does not change, therefore we, the children of Jacob, are not what? Consumed. Praise the Lord He doesn't change. And there's a wonderful hope that in Christ we are in the Father's hands and we are in the Son's hands. And is there anybody strong enough to take us out of those hands? No. So we are not consumed. And then further, the excellency of God's character means He is, can only do good. Psalm 119.68, you are good. That's his character. And as an extension of that, because he is good, what does he do? Good. Teach me your statutes. 
So we know that the Bible teaches God does not change, and we know that because God is good, everything he does is good. So then how in the world is God saying in two times, actually, that he regrets doing something? We see this in verse 10 of 1 Samuel 15. The word of the Lord, or verse 11, I'm sorry. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. And then, of course, in verse 35, we see him saying he regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. So which is it? Do we have a contradiction in the Bible? What are we, what are we to do here? And it's important for us to look particularly in verse 28 and 29, because this provides some clarity for us. The first thing I think that's important to keep in mind is the writers of Scripture are not idiots. Now, why do I say that? Because some people are going to argue as they look at this, they're like, well, they're saying one thing, and then in the next moment, they're saying the exact opposite of what they're saying. When you see that in a passage, there's something going on there that we need to be very careful about because these guys were brilliant, And they're not going to say nonsensical things. So look at verse 28 and 29. Samuel said to him, because Samuel is going away, and Saul grabs a hold of of Samuel's, uh, the skirt of his robe, and he tears it off. And Samuel looks and says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And then he says, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. Well, wait a second. Didn't it just say in verse 10 that God regretted that he made Saul king over Israel? He will not have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And then we come to verse 35. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So what is going on here? Well, the key here is to understand the divine nature of God as different from our nature. His regret is not like ours. You say, that seems like an overly simplistic answer, and yet it's the very thing that Samuel points to. Notice what he says again in verse 29. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret because he is not a what? He is not a man that he should have regret. So how do I look at this passage? How do we reconcile these seemingly, in one chapter, within phrases of each other, seemingly contradictory statements? And the answer is that when God regrets, he does not regret in the way that we regret. What? Yes. (laughs) And I I say that purposely because there's a tension here that shows us something about who God is. He is not like us. We want to try to pull him down to our level, and we want to try to put him in a box and say this is what God is like. But he's not like us. He's not a man that he should have regret. And so, does God change? The answer is, No. Does God have regret? Not like we do. 
Well, then what is God's regret like? I don't know. (laughs) That's where we understand the mysteries of a God that we cannot fully and completely comprehend. If you have a God that you can comprehend, you've made that God. And so does God change his mind? No. He does not regret as man regrets. Does that answer your question to this? No. doesn't answer all my questions, but that's okay. And when we get to heaven, we're not even going to care anymore because we'll be in the presence of the King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth we find in it. May we be encouraged, Lord, to bring genuine sacrifice, genuine praise from our hearts. Lord, thank you that you are the God who is, not the God of our imaginations. Thank you that you are not like us. Thank you, Father, for the wondrous hope we have in Christ our Savior. Lord, may he be king of our lives. May we not seek to be led by our own desires, to be impatient, to be like the world around us. Father, may we truly shine like lights in the universe. May we reflect the glory of what we saw this morning, that the morning star has risen in our hearts in Christ. Thank you for your word. We pray these things in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Just a quick note, especially if you're watching online, there's not going to be a Sunday evening service next week or the week after. Uh, Reed and I are going to be out of town. There will be youth group next week, but there won't be um, a Sunday evening service. And then the week after that, we're going to have our picnic, our church picnic, and there'll be no evening service after that as well. So uh, next two nights, no Sunday evening service. Next, not next two nights, next two Sunday nights, no evening service. But thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.